You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Good morning. As we continue in our time of worship, if you would turn your Bible to John chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 20 to 26 this morning. Thank you, Zach, for leading us, for pinch hitting. Um, That's right. That's right. We have a deep bench at Lakeview, and we're very grateful for that. Grateful for our orchestra who continually to serve excellently week in and week out. Thank you, Josh, for leading us in that song, wonderful song. And uh, we are richly blessed here. One of the ways you know that you're walking in the blessings that God has bestowed on you is that you have a heart of gratitude more than a heart of negativity. Gratitude is the evidence that you're aware of the blessings that God has poured out upon you. And I'm very aware of the blessings that have been poured out on this church. We pray will continue to be poured out upon this church. We're going to be in verses 20 to 26 to get at the heart of this passage. If you will look with me in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you today as we continue to worship that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus. That you would unite our hearts to fear your name that we know in Jesus, that you would incline our hearts towards your salvation in Jesus, and that you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love that we know incarnate in the person of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. A few years ago, there was a young lady who attended Master's College in Los Angeles, who was from a a country whose official state religion was opposed to salvation by grace. It was opposed to Christianity, for that matter. Her father was a mid-level official in that government, but... His daughter was gloriously converted to Jesus Christ. And she told her father that she wanted to go study the Bible, the Word of God, the Scripture. She wanted to learn uh, the great doctrines of the faith. And though her father was committed to his religion, out of love for his his daughter, he let her go. And she came uh, to Master's College. And she began to learn the languages she wanted to use to to translate back into her native language. The first Christmas, after her first semester, she went back to her country. And the security there essentially, unofficially arrested her and just 
put her through all kinds of interrogation. After hours of interrogation, they allowed her to go home to her parents. When she got there, her parents weren't there, but her uncle was. And he screamed at her the first time he saw her. He said, you have shamed your family. You have shamed your family name, and he began to beat her. He picked up a chair, in fact, and he began to beat her with a chair. The chair broke. He picked up a leg of the chair and began to beat her with the leg of the chair. And as she is losing consciousness, her father came home. And uh, he restrained the uncle from killing his daughter. He rushed her to the hospital. And they began to treat her. And in time, she restored her health. Her health was restored. And, 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 and then the father said to her, in very painful words, I've got to send you back to the United States and you can't come back here. It's not safe for you. Well, she came back and in due time, John MacArthur, the president of Master's College, met her and, and, and asked her, what were you thinking when your uncle was doing that to you? And without hesitation, she responded, I was thinking, my uncle has a religion he will kill for. And I have a savior that I will die for. This young lady's approach to life has become the cruciform life. Cruciform is a Latin word for in the shape of a cross. Her life is a life shaped by the cross. A life patterned after her Savior's own life. To say it another way, it's a life uh, that's been called the J-curve life. Like the letter J. Jesus' life descends through his incarnation, the Son of God taking on flesh, human flesh, coming in the likeness of sinful flesh. Great humiliation there. Through his cross, taking our judgment, and his burial, and then being raised in resurrection and exaltation. That's the J-curve life. And that very J-curve life becomes the map of the Christian life. That is, we should expect the moment we are converted, in fact, a life of dying and rising that will continually reenact the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we see both in our text today, this, this dying and this rising to glorification from the very words of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he's responding uh, to some Gentiles who have come compelled by his person, compelled by his work, compelled by his words. Now, last time we saw the presentation of the king. Uh, he is presented as the ironic king as he comes into Jerusalem 
on that great triumphal entry, but he comes on a donkey. Uh, He's coming to secure peace, as we know, through his death. Today, we see, first of all, in light of beholding the presentation of the king, the pursuit of the king. The pursuit of the king by uh, these, these Gentiles. If you would, look with me in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast. What feast? It's the the feast of Passover. Were some Greeks. Now, last week, again, we saw this entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. This took place on Sunday, five days out from the cross. This account doesn't tell us when it happened. Perhaps it happened just after he was presented into Jerusalem, as he came into Jerusalem. But many scholars believe that this account occurs just after Jesus cleansed the temple for the second time. We saw him cleanse the temple at the beginning of John, at the beginning of his ministry, and and he cleanses it for a second time at at the end before he goes to the cross. John does not record that. The other Gospels do record that. Remember, the Gospels do not contradict each other. They're giving us a composite picture. We need all four Gospels to have a composite picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the cleansing of the temple occurred in the court of the Gentiles. And so it would only make sense that in that court of the Gentiles, these Gentiles, these Greeks, would have seen Jesus and and they would have been compelled by him. Now, these Greeks are not necessarily from Greece. Um, It's very likely they are just Gentiles from the Greek-speaking world. It's really not that important. But what is important is the major theme that we have seen throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus came not just to save Israel. He came as the Savior of the world. We saw that in John chapter 1. Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. That doesn't mean every person in the world is going to be saved. We're not universalists. But he has come as the only Savior for the world. And you must respond to his work. You must respond to him in in faith and repentance. Uh, We saw in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. We saw in John chapter 4, verse 42, the Samaritans, the Samaritans of all people, the hated, despised Samaritans who said, we know indeed this is the Savior of the world. And by the way, they only had the first five books of the Old Testament. They knew just from those first five books, Genesis to Deuteronomy, that a Savior was coming. A Savior who would come not just to save Israel, but to save the nations. In John chapter 6, verse 33, we we saw that Jesus is the one who gives life to the world. We need life because we're naturally, spiritually dead. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. What that tells us is without that light, we live in perpetual and eternal darkness. 
And then in John chapter 10, Jesus said in verse 16, I have other sheep who are not of this fold, referring to the Gentiles. And so the Greeks, the the Gentiles were there to worship at the feast, at the Passover. What does that tell us? It tells us that these Greeks had turned from the Greek gods. And they had begun worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And which also means that their Bible was our Old Testament. What they would have called the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevin, the Kephivim, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And their, their, their word, their scriptures prescribed the Passover. And so they were there, but they also recognized, it appears, that their scriptures foretold of a Messiah. A Messiah who would come. Perhaps these Greeks recognized the inadequacy of the sacrificial system. The inadequacy of the Passover feast. That they would have to come year in and year out and, and, and kill new lambs and sheep and goats year in and year out. Perhaps that's why they come. And notice in verse 21. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him some of the most beautiful words in all the scriptures right here. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. Uh, The Greeks appear here uncertain whether they can just come to Jesus on their own. And so they approach Philip. Now, why do they approach Philip? We don't know. But we do know this. There were only two disciples who had Greek names, Philip and Andrew. And so perhaps they assumed, maybe they knew his name. Perhaps they assumed that Philip knew Greek. Whatever it was, they came to Philip. But more importantly, the way Jesus is going to respond to them, we're going to see that in just a few moments. Um, More importantly, we see that their desire... To see Jesus has to do, it appears, with salvation. And I love how they ask, sir, we wish to see Jesus. That should be our heart's cry every day. Your great, your most important need as a believer every day is to behold Christ. If you behold Christ, if you behold his glory, it takes care of a lot of things in your life. It has a trickle-down effect. We never get past this. We should wake up every day. Father, I wish to see Jesus. I wish to see him by his spirit, through his word, and through the fellowship of the saints. I wish to see Jesus. And that's my heart's cry for when we gather every Sunday. Everything we do in corporate worship, the goal, we wish to see Jesus. Well, notice in verse 22. Philip went and told Andrew. I don't know why he came to Andrew, but we always see Andrew the one who's who's delivering messages to Jesus. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. I love that. They went and told Jesus. Of course, he is God in the flesh to tell Jesus 
is to tell the Lord himself. And, and this is an example for us all. We have seen this theme throughout the gospel of John. When there's a need, when there's a crisis, God's people come to Jesus. It should mark our lives. My tendency when I have a struggle is to go tell people. And we see by this example, they went and told Jesus. Today, May the 7th, is the 184th birthday of Elisha Hoffman. Elisha Hoffman was a pastor in Pennsylvania. And one day, this lady, distraught with depression, came to him and said, Pastor Elisha, I have what appears to be incurable depression. It is enabling me. I mean, it's disabling me in everything. What shall I do? Elisha Hoffman responded, you cannot do better than to take all your sorrows to Jesus. You must tell Jesus. And she responded, yes, that's it. I must tell Jesus. And those words echoed in, in Hoffman's ears. She went, he went home, picked up a pen, and he began to write a song. I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. I cannot bear my burdens alone. I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. Jesus can help me. Jesus alone. Became one of the great hymns. In fact, he wrote other hymns. Maybe you've heard of this one, Down at the Cross. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Or how about this one, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. But going back to this hymn, I must tell Jesus, that's act, that, that exactly the instinct that these disciples have developed. They, they have seen it time and time again. In John chapter 2, uh, they run out of wine at the, at the wedding ceremony. And what does Mary do? She goes and tells Jesus. John chapter 11, how about when, when Lazarus, Mar Martha's brother is sick and, and Martha goes and she tells Jesus. So, they have learned by example. They have learned by discipline. When there are concerns, when there are questions, when there are issues, you tell Jesus. And when you tell Jesus, marvelous things happen. And that brings us to the second part of this passage. We have seen the pursuit of the king. And here we see in verses 23 and 24, the pronouncement of the king, one of the great pronouncements of the king. Verse 23, and Jesus answered them. So this answer is in response to the Greeks wanting to see Jesus. And Jesus is now telling uh, Andrew and Philip, here's what you tell them. The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Now we have seen six times that the hour hasn't come. There's going to be nine times we read about the hour. 
For six times we have seen the hour has not yet come. And now Jesus is saying in this remarkable verse, the hour has come. What is that hour? The appointed time, let me just say this, the most important hour, it's not literally 60 minutes, it's a time frame, but the most important hour in the history of the world. The hour where the Son of God will be nailed to a Roman cross and judged in our place, taking our sin, taking our vile iniquity, the sins of the mind, the sins of the hands and feet, the sins of the tongue, and being crushed to death, being accursed of God so that we might have that curse removed. That's the hour that Jesus is referring to here. And clearly, the Gentiles coming to him spurs that thought in Jesus' mind. Jesus sees it as evidence that the hour is coming. Now, why is that? Because in the Old Testament scriptures, we see that in the day of the Lord, the Gentiles will gather. The Gentiles will come to Yahweh in faith, they will join Zechariah 2, join themselves to Yahweh in that day. And now those Gentiles are coming, and Jesus recognizes that hour is here. In fact, in one of the great prophecies of the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7, it refers to the Son of Man. Now, don't lose sight of the fact that in verse 23, he has self-designated himself as the son of man, which is picking up the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. And in chapter 7, verse 13, it says, There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, that would have been the father, and was presented before him. And so it appears that a victory has already been achieved here. He's presented before the ancient of days, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all, notice, all peoples, all nations and languages should serve him. And so now the Gentiles are coming to Jesus and that spurs Jesus to say that hour is here. Through my victory, you will have the ingathering of the nations uh, to the ancient of days. But how? Will this son of man achieve this victory? Well, that brings us to verse 24. Verse 24, in a, in a verse that's maybe one of the most underrated verses in the Bible. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Now in John chapter 10, Jesus is the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. In John chapter 11, he is the very resurrection in the life incarnate who conquers death. And now here in John chapter 12, he is depicting himself as the grain of wheat that falls into the earth and dies and that, out of that, 
bears much fruit. Uh, we have some farmers in this church, and we're grateful for you. But in planting season, a, a grain is sawn into the ground like a tomb. That, that, that ground functions like a tomb. And, and then it dies. And then out of that comes resurrection plant. Do you know that all creation declares the glory of God? And even when you see what happens with a seed that dies and comes up bearing fruit, it is preaching to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. The coming of the Greeks made Jesus think of that great harvest, not only of Israel, but also the Gentiles, the great fruit he speaks of here that would come from his death and his burial in the ground. And I don't want you to miss the necessity of his death here. Notice in verse 24, every word matters, by the way. We hold here to what the Bible holds about itself, verbal plenary inspiration. What does that mean? Every word is inspired of God. That's why the word of God's inerrant and infallible. Every word matters. Don't overlook this word. He says in verse 24, unless... Unless, such a, it appears to be an innocent word. But this word has so much significance. Unless a grain of wheat falls and dies, it remains alone. Apart from the cross, judgment will fall on every single human being because that's what we deserve. There's no one who doesn't deserve judgment. You take the kindest, most moral person you have ever met and before the bar of an infinitely holy and righteous God, that person deserves the judgment of God. Unless this grain of wheat falls. Yesterday, King Charles was coronated, but the kingdom that Jesus came to establish in his first advent did not begin with a coronation. It began with a crucifixion, the true king. In fact, I heard that $125 million were spent on King Charles's coronation yesterday. $125 million. But the true king pays the price himself. So Jesus' death is one of a kind. It is the ground of all fruitfulness, all right? Yet his death becomes a pattern that operates in the sphere of humanity. Or better said, the sphere of, of redeemed humanity. That is... As to Christ, if there is to be fruit, he must die. Let me repeat that. As to the Lord Jesus Christ, if there is to be fruit, he must die. As to his disciples, as to his followers, the fruit of salvation is that we die daily. All right, that brings us to the final part of this passage. 
the prerequisite and the promise of the king. Look with me in verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He's essentially saying, how do you know if Jesus' death and resurrection, that is the fruit of his being put to death, how do you know it has taken effect in your life? It becomes a pattern in your life. That's what he's saying here. All right? Notice, whoever loves his life loses it. The verb here, loses, often means destroys. So let's read it that way, because that, that is a part of the semantic range. Whoever loses his life or loves his life destroys his life. What does that mean? That means that you live your life in the here and now as if this is all there is. It will destroy you in the end. You know, that's the purpose of Ecclesiastes. Do you know that Ecclesiastes is a part of the wisdom literature? Because it's the natural, it's the natural state of fallen humanity. And so God took this man who had everything a person could have times a thousand. And he uses him as a test case. You think if you had wine, women, and song, you'd be happy? This man had all of that and more. And here was the conclusion. Life under the sun, life under the sun being a description of someone who's absorbed with the here and now, who is focused on temporal vanities without regard for eternity. Life under the sun. Life under the sun is striving after the wind. You can chase wind, but you can't catch wind. It is vanity of vanities. And Jesus goes on and says, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He's not saying that you are to hate yourself. Uh, that would be sinful in itself. You're an image bearer. You have worth and you have dignity, okay? Every person here has the same worth and the same dignity, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your socioeconomic uh, status, no matter how much you have achieved or, or how little you've achieved in life, you have the same worth and dignity because you are an image bearer. That's not what he's saying, that you hate yourself. What he is saying here is that you love Christ and his kingdom uh, in such a way that it makes all other interest in this life, comparatively speaking, seem like hate. You know that intuitively. I mean, some of you have, uh, many of you have a favorite sports team. And you love that team. But compared to your love for your parent or your parents or your or your children, your love for your team would feel like hate comparatively. Okay? He is saying, if you're truly a disciple, you will love me more than you love any pursuit in this life. And he's not, and John's not the only one who gives us this. In fact, all the gospels give us. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Matthew 10, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Are we to love our parents? Of course we are. We're to honor our parents. It's the fifth commandment. 
And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He's saying that if you make an idol of your children, it's very likely you're not a follower of Christ. Or an idol of anything else for that matter. Mark chapter 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. John, or Luke chapter 17, verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. One of the shortest verses in the Bible. One of the shortest sermons in the Bible. Remember Lot's wife who was fixated on the, on the here and now. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. This is the J-curve. You must first descend in death to self that you may, be, you may rise in resurrection glory. It's the cruciform life, life in the life uh, shape of the cross. Hating one's life means dying to everything that is opposed to the word of God and the will of God. That's what it means. doesn't mean you hate yourself personally. It means you hate everything that's opposed to God. One man, many of you know, who learned this lesson was George Mueller, the great man of the 19th century who planted these orphanages and sustained them largely on his knees in prayer. And someone asked him, what was the secret to persevering in prayer as you did? And here's what he said. There was a day when I died. I died to George Mueller. His opinions, preferences, taste, and will. Died to this world. Died to the approval or blame even of my brethren or friends. And since then I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. So we die. We die to self. We die to sin by starving it. And by presenting ourselves alive to God in Jesus Christ. So we, we die to the things we naturally speak. Slander, criticism, gossip. We die to the things that we naturally think about. We die to the things that cause us to sin with our hands and our feet. Everything opposed to the word and will of God. Now, do we do that perfectly? No. That's why we need a savior every day of our life. And yet this is the fruit that comes out of trusting in a savior who died and was raised from the grave. Notice in verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. That's the promise. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So John is writing that you and I would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but he will not let us get away with easy believism. Okay? Note the, the verbs, serve and follow. This is not radical Christianity. This is Christianity 101. Now, it's not work salvation either. We recognize that we are saved by grace through faith alone. But faith always produces works, right? 
We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the path, Jesus says, of seeing him. We want to see Jesus. And Jesus responds, you want to see me, you need to understand the gospel, and then you need to respond to the gospel in self-crucifixion. A.W. Tozier, and we close here. In every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne till he puts himself on the cross. By the way, I think that's our natural default position. It, it, we wake up every morning on the throne. Okay? We, we, we self-absorbed, self-ruled until by the Spirit we place ourselves back on the cross, right? If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. We all want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. Isn't that remarkable? No cross for us, no dethronement, no dying. But then he says, we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. And so in light of this cruciform kingdom, this kingdom in the shape of a cross, the cruciform life stands for two things for every believer. And we're going to close here. First of all, it's your once for all conversion to Jesus where you die to yourself in repentance and you come to the one who died in your place, taking the judgment in your place and was raised in your place that you might be justified. That is your once for all death to self, but then there's a daily crucifixion commitment that you make in light of that. And then taking a cruciform or, or crucifixion audit every day of your life. What areas of my life do I need to die to today? Every believer, and I think you will agree with this, every believer every day has crosses to bear. It's the mark of the Christian. In fact, it's one of the ways we become light in darkness. There will be things every day that you want to say and things you want to do, but you can't for Christ's sake, and you die to them. And there's going to be things you don't want to do, and there's going to be things you, you, you don't want to, to say or feel like doing, but you must do for Christ's sake. And here's what happens. Fruit is born from that. Your heart is changed by that. There's fruit in your own life, and then there's fruit in your own witness. Let's learn from the grain of wheat that falls and dies in the ground, but then bears fruit. When we die to self, our own grain of wheat falls to the ground like that of our Savior, and we too produce fruit. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's a promise from the Lord Jesus Christ. As Zach comes forward with the musicians, 
We want to give you an opportunity for those of you that have not died to self, that once for all death to self, repentance, fleeing to the Christ who died, was buried, was was raised, that much fruit may be born. That fruit may include your salvation. But you have responsibility in that. You have to come to him on his terms. You have to repent, die, and come. Won't you come this morning as we stand and as we sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.